it's a pretty relatable image. A family piles out of their car on a mission to buy the yearly Christmas tree. Excited and hopefully filled with the Christmas spirit, you walk around the lot, hoping to find one that's tall enough, squat enough, big enough, whatever enough, to fill that space in your home where it will sit until the needles begin to fall off and you decide that it's time to pack up all the ornaments until next year. And that's what the Love family was doing on December 12th, 1974. Eugene, his wife Diane, and their daughter Darlene. Their decision was spur of the moment, something that had come up that evening over dinner. Let's go get a tree, Mr. Love had said. His wife wanted to get a look at some of those new painted trees that they were selling that year on the lot. The Loves walked around the parking lot behind the Montgomery Ward's department store in Bradenton, Florida, off of Cortez Road, searching for their yearly tree. Mr. Love found one, and he was holding it straight up and down for his wife and daughter to consider. Mrs. Love stood next to their daughter and looked at the tree, when suddenly a loud pop jarred the shoppers. Mrs. Love toppled over, immediately falling to the ground, with blood pooling around her head. Her little girl began to scream hysterically. And that's what a lot of the witnesses remembered, that little girl continuing to scream. The skies were cloudy and threatening rain, wrote Detective McKay as he later documented what occurred that evening. It was a cool winter night in Florida when he received a call from dispatch at 8.05 p.m. He headed to the scene. Bradenton Fire Department left the station at 8.04 p.m., so they beat him there and were tending to the gunshot victim as McKay rolled up. While the first responders worked on the patient and got her into the ambulance, Detective McKay and two other law enforcement officers began talking to witnesses. The immediate consensus was that the shot sounded like it came from a vehicle driving on Cortez Road, right next to the lot where the Christmas trees were being displayed. No other projectiles were located aside from the one that would later be removed from Mrs. Love and she would be pronounced dead at the hospital. Later that evening, when Detective McKay made it back to the station, he knew that he would need the help of the public, so he obtained permission to notify the media immediately and put out a plea for any information that the public may have. It appears that that was done that same night. The first important question that I have is whether that plea made it to the 11 o'clock news broadcast that night. This detail will become important soon enough because another crime was committed that night and the individuals involved had driven past the Montgomery Ward store right at the time of the shooting. So let's talk about that. There were three cousins, Dean, John, and Willie May. 
and they were involved in a breaking and entering about three and a half hours after the shooting at the Christmas tree lot. This group started out in Bradenton that night and ended up at a residence in Palmetto, Florida, about eight miles away. Bob Marshall, a local attorney, was a friend of Dean's mother, Bobby, so Dean knew that Mr. Marshall had guns in his house, and that's what the trio was after that night. According to the Palmetto Police Report, at about 11.45 p.m., dispatch notified patrol of a possible breaking and entering occurring on 7th Street in Palmetto, Florida. A vehicle was seen leaving a residence, and it was described as burgundy or maroon with white stripes. A chase ensued. The patrol vehicle located the perpetrator vehicle and then lost it for a time around Manatee Avenue heading into Bradenton. With the help of individuals along the route, as well as neighbors of Mr. Marshall and Mr. Marshall himself, identifying Dean's family as people that he knew in the Bradenton area, the perpetrator vehicle was eventually located near Dean's home. Probably not the best idea to abandon the vehicle and stolen items right near where you live, but both the vehicle and stolen items were found in the vicinity of his mother's house where he lived. Some of the guns were dumped in the bushes behind the home, and one rifle was still in the vehicle. Meanwhile, Bradenton PD had stopped Dean's sister Belinda and two male friends in a vehicle nearby and took them down to the station to be questioned. Dean was found inside the home along with John. They were also taken down to the station for questioning. Another officer got a lead on the location of the third individual, the female who had been involved in the breaking and entering. 19-year-old Willie May, who was essentially the getaway driver, was found at a nearby Waffle House, and she was also taken down to the station for questioning. Pretty quickly, Dean's sister Belinda and her two male friends were interviewed about what they knew and then taken home. Willie May immediately confessed to driving the vehicle. Here's what it says in her handwritten statement. We got to Bradenton, Florida at 7 p.m. We'd made plans to just visit and go out for a while. We went to Dean's house and sat for about 15 or 20 minutes. John and I went to take a girl home. Belinda and Deidre went with us. These are Dean's sisters. We took her home and stopped at a pool hall by McDonald's. Dean was there, so we got out for a few minutes. We waited for Dean to finish a game he was playing, and then we took Belinda and Deidre home. We left there, Dean and John and I, and was riding around. They asked me to rent a hotel room, so I did, for us to spend the night. I rented it under Kathy L. Young at the Holiday Inn. Dean and John sat in the car while I got the room. I didn't pay for the room. We left there and was riding around. We stopped and got a sandwich for me at a 7-Eleven store. We left that store and was riding around again. And then Dean said he knew a place where there was some guns and things, so John said we might as well do something. So we went over to a man's house, and they got out of the car, and I drove around the block two times. I parked for about 10 minutes. They told me to wait for about 15 minutes. Then I went back in front of the house, and they were running out to the road from the yard. So I stopped, and they put some guns and things in the car, 
and I drove off. I saw a man and a woman standing in front of the house across the street, so I told them to get in the car and let's go. They were going to go back and get some more things, so they jumped in the car and I drove off. We was going back to Bradenton. I don't know where at, but we was just going to get away from the house, and a policeman turned around and started following us. He told me to go faster. I was really scared, so I went faster across the bridge and through to the left, and I said, my God, what am I going to do? So they told me to stop. So I did, and John got under the wheel and started driving. He turned in Dean's mom's house and went to the back. We got out of the car, and I did help them take the stuff out of the car and put it in the bushes. John moved the car, and then I saw the police, so I yelled, and we all ran in different directions. I went back behind a house and hid in the bushes so no one could find me. I sat there for about one hour, and then I went up to a house, and I asked a lady if I could use her phone. She asked me what was wrong, and I told her a lie. I called Dean's mother, and she just said for me to hang up. So I did. And then I called a cab, and he didn't show up. So I started hitchhiking into town, and I got a ride to the Waffle House, and the police caught me. Now John was asked if he would give a statement, and he said he would, but he wanted to talk to Dean first because, quote, he didn't want to be a snitch. According to the report, John stated that he wanted to explain to Dean that they were caught and that's all there was to it. Oddly, John was allowed to talk to Dean and then gave his statement. There's no indication in the report whether the two were alone and unobserved during this discussion or not. There's no transcript or notation of what exactly was said. John then writes out his statement, and Dean agrees to do one as well, but he said that he couldn't write very well, so John offered to write his for him. Again, there's no notes as to whether this was all done while being observed by law enforcement or not. Now, the handwritten statements that the boys gave were decidedly less detailed than Willie Mays, just one paragraph each. Johns says this, I came to visit Dean. He knew where we could get some guns, so we went in and we took him from a house in Palmetto. We then left Palmetto going south when a Palmetto cop started chasing us. We got away at the time, but finally was caught in Bradenton. That's it. That is John's full statement. Dean's says this. John came to visit me. I knew Bob Marshall had some guns, so we went in and we took them. The door wasn't locked. We put them in the car and left. The police started chasing us and we ran. We finally got caught in Bradenton. This statement was written by John because Dean can't read or write. So the first thing you're going to want to take note of is the fact that at no time in any of these statements did any of the three of them mention that they had a gun with them before the robbery of the other weapons from Mr. Marshall's house. And the timing of the Diane Love incident would have occurred before the robbery at Mr. Marshall's house. And I want this to be a warning for you possible criminal-minded folks within earshot in case there are any of you listening. If you lie to police or withhold information during the course of an investigation, you can almost bet that that lie will be seen as nefarious in nature. 
it's possible that that lie could end up being the basis upon which an entire investigation into you might begin. I realize as I type this script up for the podcast how ironic that is. Given what you are going to later hear about the lies that were told by investigators during this investigation, but the hard truth is this. Whether we like it or not, in this country, police are allowed to lie when they're interviewing you. You are not allowed to lie to them. And if you're being questioned by a federal agent, you really don't want to lie to them. So now, did this first lie of omission, because they did have a gun, end up coloring the investigation? Well, let's just say it was but one detail that had investigators cutting their eyes in their direction. The day after the shooting on December 13th, a boyfriend of Dean's mom contacted the sheriff's department saying that he had information about the woman who was shot at Montgomery Wards. He told police that he had received a call from Dean's mother, Bobby, in the early morning hours after the incident, saying that her son Dean and his cousin John had been arrested for breaking and entering. They were being held at the Palmetto Jail. Dean's mom asked this boyfriend to go bail her son and nephew out of jail. And he went up there, but when he learned that they had stolen a bunch of guns from the house of a local resident, he refused to post their bond. This boyfriend left the jail and went back to tell Bobby that he wasn't going to do it. And at that point, Bobby agreed, telling him, quote, not to spend any money on them because they had shot the woman at Montgomery Wards. This boyfriend said that he didn't pay her too much mind because he didn't even know about the shooting at the time, and he didn't learn about it until later that day when he got the newspaper and read about Diane Love being shot at the Christmas tree lot behind the shopping center off Cortez Road. Then he immediately called the sheriff's department about what had occurred the previous night. In the following days, investigators took that boyfriend with them to talk to Bobby. They tried multiple times to contact her to no avail. On one of these visits, just days after the shooting, Dean was present at her house when they came looking for her. So they decided to interview him again, and this time they taped the conversation. During this interview, Dean admitted that they had a 38 caliber gun with them that night before the robbery and he said it was his cousin John's gun. But he was adamant that none of them shot that gun that night. They only had it in case someone came up on them while they were committing the robbery. When police asked where this 38 was, knowing that the caliber of the bullet that Diane Love was shot with was a 38, Dean told them that his cousin John took it to Plant City and gave it to his brother. And I imagine that didn't go over too well, that little detail a weapon that matched the caliber of the bullet that killed a woman was suddenly unavailable. Dean's mother, Bobby, would never speak with police about the incident. So in the absence of any clarification, her excited utterance went unclarified. Why did she make that statement to her boyfriend about not bonding the boys out of jail because, quote, they shot that woman at Montgomery Wards? What made her say that? Is it possible that she saw the story of the shooting on the evening news and made the inference herself, knowing that these boys had already been up to no good that night? 
because they did have records, both of them. They were often up to no good. And how did she find out about the boys being arrested? Well, one possibility lies in the statement of Willie May. In her statement, as you'll recall, after she had hidden in the backyard when she, Dean, and John ran in different directions, she said, quote, I sat there for about an hour, I went up to a house, and I asked a lady if I could use her phone. She asked me what was wrong and I told her a lie. I called Dean's mother and she just said for me to hang up, so I did. So, as far as our timeline goes, about an hour after the three ran in different directions, Willie May called Dean's mom. We know that police arrived at Dean's house and found the abandoned vehicle and stolen items after 11.45 p.m. when patrol got that original dispatch and began pursuit. The distance between where they stole the items and Dean's house is only about eight miles. We can guesstimate that they arrived at the home somewhere around midnight, and that call Willie May made to Dean's mom was around one in the morning or thereafter. Whether this was the call that clued Bobby in that the boys had been arrested, or she had gotten a call from law enforcement, or Dean himself from jail that night, is unclear. Nowhere in the 900-plus pages of police reports that I reviewed was that detail revealed. Dean, John, and Willie May were all charged with breaking and entering. The boys weren't bonded out that night, but because she had three small children and was pregnant at the time, Willie May was taken home. Dean, John, and Willie May all denied knowledge of the shooting. Willie May said, she didn't even know John had a gun in the vehicle that night. And Dean's mom, Bobby, would never give police a statement. Bobby's boyfriend continued to believe that the boys had something to do with the shooting of Diane Love at the Christmas tree lot. But was that because the boy already had a record of past behavior involving law enforcement? What do we have in the way of facts that ties someone from that particular vehicle to the shooting of Diane Love? Well, we have the timing. The Holiday Inn guest registration receipt that Willie May admitted to signing in the name of Kathy L. Young on the night of the shooting and burglary, that is time-stamped 7.52 p.m. The time of the shooting at the Christmas tree lot behind the Montgomery Wards was listed on the incident report as approximately 8 p.m. The dispatch went out at 8.05. One of the investigators drove that route from the Holiday Inn to the Montgomery Wards Plaza in heavy traffic, had to stop at all the signal lights, and made it that distance in nine minutes. And Dean admitted that they passed by there after leaving the motel. Willie May said that she went in and registered, but the boys never got out of their car. They left to go driving around directly after she registered. That would literally get those three to the intersection in question at the exact time of the shooting. So that basically checks off opportunity from the motive, means, and opportunity checklist. There appears to be no motive in this case as far as law enforcement can see. They believe that whoever took a shot from a moving vehicle that night in December of 1974 wasn't aiming at Diane Love. It was a motiveless, random, stupid crime that unfortunately had dire consequences. 
We can also check means off the motive means and opportunity list. Dean admitted that they had a weapon in the vehicle when they passed the Montgomery Ward's parking lot, a 38 caliber weapon, and Diane Love was shot with a 38. But nobody in that vehicle admits that a gun was fired. Willie May says that she didn't even know that John had a gun with him that night. So what we have is them with a gun passing the scene of a crime at pretty much the exact time that a shot rang out. Add to that what appears to be an excited utterance by Dean's mom, according to a boyfriend, suggesting that she believed that they had shot the woman in the Christmas tree lot. Quote, don't spend any more money on them because they shot that woman at Montgomery Wards. That is the detail that initially led police to look at these individuals for this crime. Before that, they were just three people who committed a burglary on the same night. I also need to add that there was an unidentified holster found in John's car, the maroon one with the white stripes that they abandoned on the night of the shooting, which appeared to be that of a 38 caliber holster, according to the police report. But John's gun was never located, so they don't have a murder weapon. They never did. Another interesting detail was listed on the report. On December 26, 1974, two weeks after the shooting incident, a work crew from the Arcadia prison found a gun wrapped in a coat laying in the median strip at an overpass north of the Ramada Inn at US 41 and Bayshore Road in Palmetto, Florida. Police had initially confiscated the gun, but they left the coat. No idea why. It was described as a yellow nylon windbreaker with a Ford Mustang patch on the left chest. Police would later circle back to retrieve the jacket as well. What is interesting is that this jacket was shown to the boyfriend of Dean's mother, who told them that John had a coat just like it, and he had worn that jacket on Thanksgiving at a get-together in Plant City just that year. That coat literally never comes up again in the police report. No individual was ever tied to that weapon or jacket, nor was it ever tied to this offense. Now, there would be statements in later years, when police would reinvestigate this case, from people who had heard about admissions of guilt by Dean from other people. All of it was secondhand information. And I will go into detail about those statements in the next episode. But what surprises me about the 909-page document that I received in response to my records request is that for all of the investigation and focus on Dean related to the shooting, there's almost nothing done related to the next two witness statements I'm going to outline, which seem to indicate that there was another vehicle in the vicinity at the exact same time of the shootings where an actual weapon was seen being discharged from a vehicle. And I want to start this section by reading the findings of Detective McKay, the initial investigator, from his supplemental report dated December 20th, 1974, eight days after the shooting of Diane Love. This is what Detective McKay said. From all of the evidence that I have been able to gather, plus statements from witnesses, it is my belief that Mrs. Love was struck in the head by a bullet of undetermined origin 
at this time by an unknown assailant who randomly fired a weapon into a crowd of people from an automobile that was traveling west on Cortez Road and then turned south on US-41 at a high rate of speed. Said vehicle was carrying approximately five colored males. And this is noted in the report with the abbreviation CM. And perhaps one colored female. Some of the colored males wearing stocking knit caps. I do not feel as if this was a planned shooting. Now, I want to note that this report was written in 1974 when the use of the word colored when describing black individuals was still prevalent. And I only use the term when quoting directly from the narrative. And in this case, I did so because he uses the abbreviation CM and CF, which I initially thought was Caucasian male and female, until I read the next sentence where he wrote out the phrase, some of the colored males wearing stocking knit caps. That made it clear that CM and CF abbreviation meant that he was speaking about black individuals in these witness statements. I also verified by his use of WM and WF when referring to white male and females in other parts of the report. Now this statement by McKay, which seems to illustrate the direction of the case at that time, is backed up by a letter dated one week after the shooting, written by him to nearby Sarasota law enforcement agencies which passed along the details that he had gathered. He asked for assistance in locating the black males in question, using the vehicle description and caliber of bullet as significant details. McKay believed that the unknown assailant was in a vehicle with multiple black individuals because of the next few witness statements taken from people in nearby vehicles that appear to corroborate one another. We'll start first with a woman named Erica, she contacted police after hearing the plea from law enforcement for any tips or things that they may have seen or heard in the area on the night in question. Erica spoke to McKay two days after the shooting on the 14th. According to her statement, Erica was in the car with four German men and they were on Cortez Road in Bradenton headed west toward the beach. They were stopped at a red light. When the light, which was at 9th Street, turned green, the car on their left took off fast and she heard a bang. The driver of her vehicle immediately recognized it as a gunshot. Erica saw a window to the vehicle was half open and a young black boy was leaning out the window holding a pistol. She believed a second shot went off as the vehicle sped around the corner. She saw three people seated in the back of the vehicle and it appeared to her that they were trying to hold the young boy back. She believed that the person in the middle was a girl with something white on her head. She described the car as greenish-blue, metallic, and in good condition, a medium-sized car. She kept referring to the shooter as a boy and said that he was laughing as if he was playing around. She thought he may have had a cap on, possibly with vertical stripes. So she heard two shots, the first right after the light changed green and the second when the vehicle had traveled about 10 yards ahead, the boy leaned out of the car, which was to the left and ahead of them about seven or eight yards. The people in the back were trying to pull him back, and he laughed, pulled away, and she saw the flash of the gun with the second shot. Their vehicle was in the middle lane, and the shooter was leaning out of a vehicle in the left lane. And it shocked everyone in their car because they were so close to the other vehicle 
when the first shot rang out, they believed it could have entered their vehicle, so they hung back. She said there were a few cars behind them, but she didn't think traffic was particularly heavy. She believed the car had five people in it because there would have been the driver plus the boy who hung out of the front passenger window, plus the three individuals that she saw in the back seat. And the time that this occurred is important. Erica was part of a group of ten that were to meet at the mall in front of Mass Brothers at a quarter to eight. She said one of the gentlemen in their group was missing, so her husband had left, but her group waited a few minutes before walking to the car and leaving, so she estimated the time when this incident occurred had to have been right around 8 p.m. Another witness to this event, a man named Mr. Mitchell, reported that four or five black males in a green Pontiac pulled next to him at the traffic light on Cortez Road and 9th Street at approximately 8.05 p.m. So this would be the exact time and the exact place where Erica said she saw what she saw. Mr. Mitchell had been following this vehicle on the road, and he had suspected that the occupants had been intoxicated. He said they threw something on top of his car, but he didn't get out to check it. When the light changed, Mr. Mitchell said that he heard what sounded like firecrackers. The vehicle in question was a green Pontiac, possibly a Bonneville, with a license tag that began with the number 16. That's all he could remember, other than the registration sticker was 1975. In addition to these two witnesses of what appears to be the same vehicle from which shots were fired directly by the Montgomery Ward's Christmas tree lot, there were some accompanying reports that seemed to suggest that they may have witnessed the same vehicle at other times. In a report dated December 13, 1974, at 12.45 in the afternoon, the day after the shooting, two individuals were stopped at the 1800 block of Talavast Road, named John Willis and Willie Marshall. They were 21 and 17, respectively. The vehicle that was stopped was registered to John Willis, a black male, and it was a 1964 green Pontiac Bonneville four-door with the license plate that began with 16. When the two were asked where they were the previous night, the men claimed that they went to Palmetto at about 6.30 p.m. and were with two black females until around 9.30 p.m. The officer noted that they were reluctant to speak to him. On this same day, a few hours later, at 5.15 p.m., a report was taken from a woman who observed a green car with two men in it on her way home that evening. They passed her going north on 301, and a gun was fired from their vehicle. She said it was close enough to hurt her ears. She reported this incident as soon as she read of the shooting at Montgomery Wards. So, in this set of facts, we have multiple people who appear to have seen a similar green vehicle. Two of those witnesses encounter this vehicle at the intersection by the Montgomery Ward store where Diane Liv was shot at the exact time of the shooting. One of the witnesses literally saw someone inside the green vehicle brandishing a firearm and hear one shot and then see the flash of the second shot. The next day, two black males were stopped in a vehicle matching the description 
of the one seen by these witnesses down to the same first two numbers on the license plate. Later that day, another woman encountered two black men in a green vehicle from which a gun was fired. So here's what I'd like to know. Where is the follow-up with the two females that John Willis and Willie Marshall say that they were during the relevant time period on the 12th? Where are literally any more witness statements related to John Willis or Willie Marshall? There's nothing. What I just related to you is it. That's all we have on that car or these witnesses. There is nothing else in the report about these individuals other than a couple pages from John Willis's rap sheet, which indicated that he already had two separate charges from five years prior, exactly a week apart, in two different counties of, get this, improper exhibit of weapons. He also had some burglaries on his record. And that's it. There doesn't appear to have been any more investigation into these possible persons of interest. Even though the Green Pontiac registered to Willis matched the description of the vehicle that had shots fired from it in multiple instances. Why? Why did they focus solely on Dean to the exclusion of these other, at least equally viable suspects? I'll see if I can answer that for you in the next episode. Stay tuned.